All right. Is that any better or is that worse? It's pretty similar. Um, I'm not entirely sure that it is better. Yeah, I think I think it was better without. All right. Then we're going back. Hold on. God, these guys just went back and forth and back and forth with the headphones I know, for 45 they just, minutes. Yeah, they just told me to put the headphones in and take them out. It was real awkward. This is this is going to be the best opening to a podcast anyone has ever heard. Oh, yeah, no. Hopefully, yeah, oh, God, yeah. Hopefully we don't have to use this part. But uh, we're, uh, you know, I hope, shooting for I hope the hip kind of people, so, so it might be that. What? Everybody, hey, welcome to Perfectly Acceptable Podcast presents Matthew Rosenberg, Portrait of a Man. I wish everybody could see what your hand just did there. You, you like, you like, did the more you know movement. I'm a, I'm a big gesticulator. <laughs> I wish I could see it. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, video was an option, but we opted not to do it. Matt Rosenberg, thank you so much for being here with us. Uh, thanks for having me. I thought it would be really weird for you guys to do Matthew Rosenberg Portrait of a Man and not be on it. I thought that would be kind of awkward. Yeah. So I, I kind of had to. Yeah, no, I mean, we had done the Facebook post for long enough talking about how it was a thing that we were going to do, whether you were signed on or not. So we appreciate you uh, yeah. being a part of it. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I make most of my decisions based on, like, sort of vague blackmail threats. Yeah. So, like, yeah, this, was perf- this worked out perfectly. Absolutely. No, and it's clear through your work as well. <laughs> That Thank was a you. compliment. Yeah. Um, I appreciate it. All right, cool, man. Well, uh, hey, I know that you've got a new book coming out, and we're all pretty excited about it. We got to read a copy of that uh, earlier this week, um, Hawkeye Freefall. You're pretty excited about this? I am very excited about it, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's you know, I, I, I don't want to be like, you know, I want to be like one of those good parents who's like, I, I love all my children equally. <laughs> but uh, this is one I love a little bit more, you know, if that makes sense. Um, Hawkeye is just one of my favorite characters in comics. And, it, you know, I, I feel like Hawkeye is a, it's an odd book because it has such a, a sort of strange pedigree of, of kind of being the weird book and sort of the outside thinkers get it and, you know, it's not, uh, it's maybe, he's not maybe an A-lister, but he is an A-lister to the people who love him, and I'm one of those people, so I'm, I'm very excited to be doing this book, yes. Um, I really dig that analogy. As uh, uh, the youngest of four, I'm pretty certain that <laughs> I am my mother's favorite child, uh, so oh, I like hearing a creator talk about their work that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm the youngest of two, and I'm pretty sure I'm not the ooh, favorite, but that's okay. That's brother okay. or sister? brother okay i have an older brother but i I think i'm in the top two so that's fine (laughs) that's a good spot to finish um well hey even just you describing that kind of describing hawk hawkeye as sort of a a fringe character um from what i've sort of been able to gather from you you're somebody who's been a part of sort of fringe art or or um i guess like fringe things in the past i guess what i'm getting at is i've heard that you um are were pretty involved in the music scene before comics yeah yeah i you know i i got out of school and just sort of went straight into bands vans and was traveling with bands and putting out records and you know doing everything that you can do in the music business that doesn't involve having musical talent Mm -hmm. i did all of that for a while and um 
you know, I, I really love music and, you know, sort of in the punk and hardcore and indie rock scenes and around that stuff. But uh, the music industry is really brutal um, in a very different way than the comics industry is very brutal. And, um, you know, I, I just hit a point where I was kind of burned out and I, I wanted to be able to still enjoy putting on a record or going to a show or anything. So I needed a change of, of career quickly. And the only thing I liked as much as music was comics. And so I just sort of dove in and said, you know, I, I guess I've got to figure out how to make comics because that's, that's what I want to be doing. And I ended up here. So, so like, let's, let's see if uh, I can burn myself out on the other thing that I love. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah. so I actually, my journey to comic books was like pretty similar. I was raised in jazz bands and, and loving music. And then um, without any of the seriousness that you had done it with, but I got to college and I just found myself like wanting to communicate about music with people. And I ended up uh, after most interactions feeling like kind of bummed out because music can so often be used as sort of like a, a social mechanism instead of like a, a genuine thing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And comics to me you know, is this like really genuine thing. You, you know, what's interesting. Uh, I have a very weird, um, like my path to comics was strange because I grew up with a comic shop on my block and, uh, you know, it's kind of like a quiet kid who kept to himself and, so comics to me has always been a very solitary thing. And from that, like I didn't, when I came out of music where it was a very social thing and it was like, well, you know, like uh, I'm the guy who goes to a show and sits there and doesn't speak when a band is playing and just watches them and people are there to drink and, and party and hang out. And uh, you know, that was never me. And so for comics it was always like, yeah, I bring it back to my room and I, I read a comic by myself. And, and that was a big barrier for me in getting into comics because I didn't know anyone who made comics. I didn't know anyone. I didn't, I didn't have any friends who liked comics really. I had friends who were like, oh, I used to read comics. And then I had a couple who liked comics and I sort of picked their brains about them, but they'd be like, I don't know how to make them. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> so it was a weird, it took a long time for me. Like a big part of my getting into comics, like professionally was being, being coming part of the community and not, and like, that was a big process for me. And, and yeah, I feel like comics is a very genuine thing, but from an, you know, I came at it from very outside. I was a, I was a fan, but I was not a part of any, you know, I, I was just reading comics my whole life without talking to anyone about them ever. So it was a very weird, uh, <clears throat> weird entry to the community for me. Um, so in looking into your body of work, I was uh, incredibly excited because as ridiculous as it is um, or not, um, like a month ago, Django and I were working here on a Wednesday, which we are wont to do. And uh, I was like, hey, Django, are you watching this Hulu like show about the Wu-Tang Clan? And he was like, oh, yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. So I went home and I watched like the first episode of it. And then I binged the entire series. And then I went to this like Showtime show about the Wu-Tang Clan. And I, I watched like this whole four-hour documentary series. Uh, had never listened to the band ever. And <laughs> so then an ongoing joke on our podcast the last like month is like Jeff's uh, newfound uh, coolness with the Wu-Tang Clan. And then looking into you, it turns out your first sort of association with comic books was, is it 12 Reasons to Die? Yeah, 12 Reasons to Die. That's what? correct. How did that happen? Um, well, first of all, like, uh, I grew up in New York, so, uh, liking the Wu-Tang Clan is, like, mandatory. They kick you out of New York City if you didn't, you know, of a certain age, if you didn't know all the lyrics to 36 Chambers, like, you had to leave. 
Um, but, uh, you know, when I, when I switched from working in the music business to comics, I was self-publishing and pitching and wasn't getting anywhere. And someone from the music business knew that I was trying to make comics and new music stuff. And I got a call from a guy who was just like, Hey, I work in the music business and I manage uh, some artists and I, you know, I'd love to, uh, pick your brain about a comic book thing, you know, can I buy you lunch? And, uh, I was working in a comic book store at the time and, um, was broke enough that like the guy could have been like, Hey, I want to stab you with a knife. Can I buy you lunch first? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. That's, you know, that's about where I was. <laughs> so, was, Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I, the meal comes first. Like that's fine. Then. Um, so yeah, I, I went out to lunch and, uh, we had a long meeting where he was very sort of secretive and played everything close to the vest. And I, uh, was asking me, you know, asking me how to make a comic and what it would be and all this stuff. And I was giving him all this advice. And then, I think of it, I was like, hey, man, you got to tell me what we're talking about here. And he was like, oh, I worked for uh, RZA, and, and uh, we're doing a, an album with Ghostface Killer, and, you know, it's RZA and Ghost together, and they want to have a comic component. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Take everything I just told you and throw it out the window, because <laughs> it doesn't really apply to, like, super famous people. Right. And... Um, you know, I, I, we went back and forth and I sort of, I, I, I helped uh, guide stuff for a little bit. And then at a certain point they were like, can we read some of your stuff? And I said, yeah. And then from there, they're like, do you want to write it? And I said, yes. And they're like, do you want to find artists? And I said, yes, very much. And then they were like, we need a publisher. And I went out and I knew the guys at Black Mask a little bit. Um, and so I brought it to Black Mask uh, just as they were starting. And they were like, yes, we want to do this. And so that was my, my first published thing. And then... um you know, from there, I, 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 my relationship with Black Mask, like, I love those guys, and, uh, you know, they gave me my first chance, so I did other books there, and uh, I co-wrote another record with uh, Ghostface after that, um, and then my relationship uh, then ended with the Wu-Tang Clan, and I was fully in comics, mm. so it was brief. Gosh, yeah, I uh, I've been trying to find copies of that, but Diamond, of course, doesn't have any. So, well, uh, with Black Mask stuff, it's generally a little bit trickier to to get it in a store. Sure, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it was the first Black Mask book, so it's it's oh, uh, really? yeah, it's, it wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to be there was the Occupy Comics anthology was supposed to be the first book, but there was a Diamond snafu, and. Uh, 12 Reasons to Die came out the week before Occupy Comics, so it is actually the first release to hit shelves. Um, so yeah, it goes back a, a long way, and it's a, they're, they're a little tricky to track down. I'm sure, you know, the Black Mask Warehouse has them somewhere buried in there, but uh, there's always a rumor that it's going to be collected in a trade. Um, we were actually just talking about that the other day, whether or not it comes together next year. We'll see, but sure. uh, there's, there's talk about a March-April trade release. Yeah, I remember. Uh, it's got awesome art. Yeah, I would love to look at it. Uh, it's all, it's like a bunch of short stories that sort of tie into a bigger story. And it's got, you know, Tim Seeley and Nate Powell and Joel Jones. It was all the people whose stuff I loved. I was like, these people won't answer my email unless I, you know, bug them. But like Riley Rosmo and um, Ron Wimberly, it's, it's a, like, the, yeah, the art is awesome. It's definitely worth the read for the art. Yeah, well, I would love to check it out. Um, I remember I was working in the store. It was like probably like five and a half years ago, and a Adam Mortimer had come in, like when like the second issue of Ballistic had come out from Black Mask. Sure. And yeah. he was like, "Well, yeah, you guys just like definitely keep an eye out for Black Mask stuff." And so I made sure to order 
pretty heavily on Space Riders number one and We Can Never Go Home number one, like the week that those came out. And yeah. like we sold out of those immediately. So fast. Yeah, like we both loved them and everyone in town loved them too. So yeah, it was just it's it's been really cool to get to a chance to talk to you over this because we've been reading your stuff since that started. Well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's awesome. Adam Adam is uh, great, and I love Ballistic. That's a that is an underrated gem of a book. Yeah, it is. Derek Robertson like doesn't have quite as much stuff out there as you'd think, given given how awesome his art is. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like weird and trippy. And now Adam is like getting all the acclaim for like the movies he's making, and people are really like getting into it. And Mark's like, "Hey, sure, Ballistic. It's like trippy Grant Morrison detectives, like buddy cop story about a guy and a talking gun. It's <laughs> it's fun." <laughs> yeah, I uh, actually he walked into the store and I was like, man, why do I recognize this guy? And I was like, oh, it's from that Grant Morrison documentary. Like he's in that talking about him. I was like, oh my god, okay, cool. Uh-huh, yeah, I um, didn't. I, yeah, I got to uh, Well, so I got a question. So kind of relating to comics and music, I think um, in the world of music, like a scene plays a pretty important role, not just to like the people making the music, but to the people who go and check it out. Do you feel, like, is, is there a sort of class of comic creators you feel a part of or, like, a comic scene that you feel a part of? You know, yeah. I mean, there was a while when it was definitely, like, when Black Mass started, it was a lot of, like, punk and hardcore kids who were kind of weird outcasts. And that was sort of a, you know, like, I remember being somewhere and there were, like, five Black Mass writers there, and we were all, like, tattooed straight edge dudes mm-hmm. and i was like oh this is a weird look in comics for us <laughs> to be like you know the dudes at the bars who aren't drinking and are just sort of you know grumpy um you know and I, that was a big thing for me but you know i came up when i started the the people i i the first person in comics i met uh was frank barberry who wrote you know, Five Ghosts and Violent Love and Image and a bunch of stuff. And he was just learning how to write comics. And his brother played bass in a punk rock band who I was friends with. And so his brother was like, you're trying to make comics? Like, you should hang on my brother. And so we went to lunch. I was just called him. I was like, hey, we should get lunch. And we just hit it off. And Frank's been one of my best friends for years and years. But when we started, we were self-publishing our stuff and driving. You know, we, we, we both lived in New York and we would get in his car and drive to Chicago and do, you know, C2E2, sleeping on someone's couch across town um, to save money and like be like, I hope we made enough money for gas to get home. And then, you know, doing that kind of thing, driving to cons and, and like going into shops and being like, this is our book, you know, and you take a copy. And um, from doing all that hustle, we sort of, met uh, a sort of a uh, whole class of like aspiring writers and it was like ed brisson and josh williamson steve orlando uh mike marisi um so like those people are are people that i've known since i started in comics and like you know a bunch of artists mike walsh brian level guys like that who you know, we'd get we'd get a hotel room for a convention and get 10 of us in the room and you know someone someone sleeping in the bath, you know, twin beds with four, four dudes in the bed, someone under the desk, like, um, that kind of stuff. And we did, I did that for years. I did that for two or three years, like all of us just piling into places and sort of traveling circus. So like, yeah, those, those, those folks are the sort of my comic family. And then conversely, like, uh, I worked in a comic shop and, uh, we had a big staff and, and I was sort of the, the person in charge of the, Tuesday night, putting the books out, 
crew and and stuff like that. And so that group of people um, that I worked with uh, are all working in comics now. So th- we're sort of a weird close knit like being in a comic shop till one in the morning, you know, drinking and eating donuts and putting comics out and flipping through them after the lights are off, like, uh, crew, but it was, uh, Tyler boss who drew four kids walking a bank with me. And we're doing a book at image next year. Um, Vita Ayala, who's doing a ton of stuff in Marvel and the James Bond book, uh, Danny lore, who's also on the James Bond book. And Danny, uh, just did, um, queen of bad dreams at vaults. Um, Matthew Klein, who's the head of sales at Valiant, we worked together. Um, Anna Peterson, who was the head of events at Fanographics, like that was our closing crew at the shop, mm-hmm. like the six of us. So those people are, to me, are, are are my comics family for sure. I think that's so rad. I also just love, like, you know, as a young, like, growing up musician, I just have these, like, crazy fantasies about those two years that bands spend just like driving around in a van crashing on people's couches playing shows to nobody and you just found a way of describing that same thing in the comic community and i think that's so rad oh yeah i mean that's what you know like me and frank were were touring guys who toured in in punk rock bands so like we were just like it's a 12-hour drive to get there like let's go and i think i know you know like i remember we stayed one year in chicago with uh a dude we knew in a band's girlfriend lived in chicago and we were like he's like yeah you can stay at my girlfriend's house and then he told us that the week before and we got a table and drove to chicago and three days before he's like hey we just broke up <laughs> and we were like can we still stay there and he was like i guess and so we just went and stayed in like the most weird, awkward situation. And it, you know, it's just like, it was a tour. It was like, you know, uh, trying to sneak into the green room and steal food and, and, and all that stuff. And like, you know, trying to get our, get our, get our books and the cool people's hands and, and trying to not starve to death and then turn around and driving home. And yeah, I mean, it was very, we did it all very sort of punk rock DIY for a long time. Did you, um, uh, did you, feel a turning point at, at some point like like where you were like okay now i don't have to sleep on somebody's recent ex-girlfriend's couch <laughs> and steal food from the green um, the turning point actually was sort of disappointing um because i love that stuff i love you know uh you know heroes con having having eight of us in a hotel room or whatever but the the turning point was when I was doing, there was a summer when I was doing seven books a month for Marvel. So I had to do a script every three days, um, without fail. Like I, I just had to get that done. And I had a bunch of cons lined up because I didn't know that was going to be my workload. You know, you commit to cons early and then your career trajectory changes. And I hit a point where I was just like, I can't, you know, I'm making money so I can pay for a hotel room or a convention cares enough that they'll, they'll buy me one, which I'm right. always appreciative of. But I was like, I need to finish on the show floor and go back to my room and, and write for six hours. Uh, I can't have a bunch of dudes like getting drunk and throwing stuff at each other and being idiots and watching movies and listening to music. Like I just can't have that. Um, and so that was sort of the turning point was just literally the workload exceeded the lifestyle. Um, <laughs> Which was, you know, uh, it should have been a prouder moment, I guess, but it was kind of a bummer where I was like, oh, I'm, you know, in this town and not hanging out with my friends. I'm sitting in a hotel room, like, 
eating room service while I work till three in the morning so that I can get six hours of sleep and then go into the con or whatever. But it, yeah, that was that was the turning point. Does it ever feel like a job, or is it still like you know exciting to be the guy writing comics, even though you're leaving the con floor and going straight to the hotel to to pound out a bunch of books? No, I mean it's a job for sure. Uh, you know, I I I put in. 70 hours, 80 hours a week, 52 weeks a year. Uh, and you feel that, you know, it's uh, not, not not to make you guys not feel special, but you're my fourth interview of the night. Oh, um, yeah, Matt, you, you, you industrious boy, you. <laughs> you know, it's that, you know, I, I worked in a shop and that's, that's tiring in a different way. And it's, you know, I've worked in a t-shirt printing factory and they're all different, but, you know, like it, it's definitely a job, but at the same time, like, I remember once I went, you know, to my parents' house for Thanksgiving and, you know, I was Thanksgiving day and I was writing and then I came out and I helped my mom for a couple hours cook. And then we had dinner and she's like, what are you going to do now? And I was like, I got to go back, get back to work and start writing. And she, she looked at me and she's like, Oh, sweetheart, it's Thanksgiving. And I was like, Oh, I don't mind. I love my job. Yeah. <laughs> like there's literally no job I've ever had that I like as much as this job, but it is still work. I think we feel um, pretty similar. Yeah, I, I think we feel pretty similar. I, I love being here, but last mm-hmm. night, you know, after doing trivia, my girlfriend had to come back here with me to put all the books on the shelf at like 10 o'clock at night. And, um, you know, yeah. I just I wouldn't mind never leaving here. I think that, like, your sort of punk rock ethos is very evident in the way that you make yourself available for stores and, and talking to people, uh, you know, doing that many interviews. I, just as a store, like that, that is a thing. Like I boosted our Hawkeye freefall orders by, you know, an extra 50% just because we were doing this interview. And anytime a, a creator actually reaches out to us, even like Rom V called us when I, one of his recent books was coming out. And I was just like, oh man, I just really appreciate that. I'll double the order. Like it's, uh, it's really cool. Even just two years ago at Comics Pro, it was very evident the fact that you were just making yourself available. That's a thing that uh, a lot of people don't do. So I, as store owners, we really appreciate that. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes from a couple places, which is like, one, you know, I think the punk rock thing, I, I remember being on a panel once with with Kieran Gillen, and, and, you know, the question was like, what do you see the correlation between music and, and comics? And, and Kieran's so smart and eloquent and, and so very British, and, you know, he gave, a, he gave an answer that was really, you know, I, I'm not going to do it justice, but he sort of talked about David Bowie and the transformation into Ziggy Stardust and when he creates this sort of ethereal magic and all this stuff and, you know, being able to slip into a character, and, and I was like, it was a very cool answer, and I was like, that's, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's what it is for Kieran, but, like, to me, you know, I grew up going to shows where, like, you know, the, the band you play, they play to a in a basement in front of 30 people and then they end their set and they're like, does anyone have a floor we can sleep on? And, you know, they, they come and crash your house and, you know, they trade you a t-shirt for dinner and, and that's it. And like, uh, that's comics to me is like, you know, you go to a store, you go to a signing, you go to a con, like it's all the same. There's no difference between me and someone working a store and someone who's just going to store week and buying books. It's like the difference is just that like, you know, I, uh, it's my day job to make them, but like, it, it's all part of the same system. Like comics isn't big enough to have rock stars and superstars. And I, you know, I, I love that it doesn't, it's, it's very much like we're all <laughs> pretty much on the same level. So that's a big part of why I always be accessible and, and talk to people. But the other part is that I worked in a shop that didn't sell back issues. And so I would, you know, 
I'd go to the buyer and be like, hey, I really like this book that's coming up. Like, order a lot of it. And then they'd order a lot of it. And if it didn't sell, they went into a box and went into a basement. And then someone would buy them for quarters on the dollar. And I was like, <laughs> oh, it just cost us a ton of fucking money. And that's awful. And that's just an awful feeling. And so I, I cringe. You know, I, I, I say to stores all the time, I was like, I'm never going to tell you to order more copies of my books because you know what you can sell better than I do. But I will ask you what I can do to help you sell what you ordered because, like, it actually gives me anxiety when I go to a store and it's like, oh, this issue came out three weeks ago and you guys have a, a thick stack of them on the wall. I'm just like, oh, I really wish I you didn't. I wish you had three of them in the back issues. And, like, that that's ingrained from working in a store for years where where the back issues were just lost money. Yeah, and we've only recently sort of really been getting into like buying old collections and doing back issue stuff, but it, it is super fun. I'm just thinking of that moment of you sitting next to like Kieran giving an awesome answer or like, you know, you did that fantastic Uncanny X-Men run and then Hickman's doing his thing. As someone myself who's the guy who stands at the back of concert venues just sort of watching because I'm so interested in mm -hmm. how everything is done. Do you ever get that sort of like sense of imposter syndrome? I also love comics because uh, I think that it's so there's a such a quick line of communication between you know store owners and the creators, much less so than like music. But do you do you feel like a, a sort of an imposter thing, which you know I feel kind of every day all the time? Oh yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah, I I never forget that I'm like. The you know, especially being at Marvel, because, you know, you walk into the, you know, we have the creative retreats where the, you know, the top dozen or so writers get together. And my first one, I'm walking into a room and it's like Mark Wade and Jason Aaron and Brian Bendis. And it's like, <laughs> these, are, these are the guys that made me want to write comics. Like, yeah. these are not like, these aren't people where I'm like, oh, I like their stuff. It's like, I was reading their books being like, I want to do this. This is like, they're changing the course of my life. And then I'm sitting there and like, you know, in my first creative summit, uh, Brian Bendis, who's, you know, just been incredibly kind to me for, for no reason other than he's just a kind, great dude, uh, pulled me aside before it started. And he was like, Hey, I know, I know you're a, you're a really big fan. And I was like, uh, he's like of a lot of the people in here and, and what we do. And I was like, I was like, yeah, for sure. And he was like, I, you just need to sort of remember that, uh, you're here because you earned your spot in the room, same as everyone else. And, uh, you need to check that fan stuff at the door. Like if I say something that's, that's doesn't, doesn't track for you, that seems off, that seems bad. He was like, it's your job to, you know, tell me like that sucks. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't know. And he was like, no, I'm serious. He's like, you won't ever be back in this room. If you aren't willing to sit there and look me in the eye and look everyone in the eye. He's like, you know, you, you have to look Mark Wade in the eye if he says something that doesn't track you and be like, that doesn't make sense. Like, I don't like that. He's like, that's why you're here. They're paying for you to be here and you earned it and you have to keep it. And I have to like go over that in my head every time, every day <laughs> to be like, yeah, they, they want me doing this. I didn't win some contest to be, you know, writing Hawkeye. I, I pitched them that they, that was the pitch they liked. So yes, the imposter thing is very real and doesn't ever go away for sure. Man, Bendis, like, everyone just has these amazing stories that he just seems like the nicest guy in comics. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I, you know, I said to him once, I pulled him aside once, and I was just like, hey, I just want to say, like, you know, when I was starting in, like, self-publishing, like, you gave me these words of encouragement, and, you know, I, I think I'm, you know, I, I owe you a lot. I'm partially here because you, you were so kind, and, like, the way you treated me when I was a fan is how I try and treat 
everybody, just the, the sense of like openness and welcoming and, and, you know, equality between everybody. And he was like, Oh, you don't want to thank me. And I was like, no, I do. And he was like, no, when I was a fan, that was Walt Simonson to me. Mm-hmm. I went to Walt Simonson and Walt was so kind and welcoming. And he's like, so I'm always doing a Walt Simonson impression to everyone I meet. <laughs> he's like, when I do something nice, I'm, I'm chasing Walt Simonson's, you know, legacy. And he's like, so you're not thanking me. You're thanking Walt. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Brian, you know, obviously is, uh, being overly, uh, you know, magnum- magnanimous to himself, and uh, he he definitely is someone who is uh, incredibly kind and nice. Um, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I I love his work, but you you did just bring up this Hawkeye book again that I read the first issue of today. I, I loved it. You've got Otto Schmidt working on the book, who I like. The first time I saw him was in the Green Arrow Rebirth stuff, and I remember like trying to send emails you know overseas to wherever he was to like get his art books because i just love his work so much and uh, after reading the first issue of hawkeye freefall like you guys have a really great synergy going on in that book uh what's it like working with him oh man uh auto is amazing like i i think it's funny because uh i think marvel fans aren't as familiar with him as dc fans and so I'll talk to people who are DC readers and I'll be like, yeah, it's Otto and their faces light up. And then I'll talk to Marvel people and I'll be like, Oh, I think I know who that is or whatever. And so it's funny because I think like January 1st, when this book hits, we're going to have a whole new, you know, breed of devotees of autos, but it's awesome. Like when we, I pitched the book a long time ago and, you know, I, I took over Uncanny and Punisher got extended. And so, so I sort of didn't have the time to give it the the attention I wanted. And, and so we sort of backburnered it for a little bit till I could really devote myself to the book more thoroughly. And when we came back into it, me and Alana, uh, my editor, um, we kept going through artists and, and she was bringing up all these people who were amazing artists. Uh, some of the like best people working at Marvel. And I kept saying, like, I was like, I feel like such a jerk saying this, but like, I would kill to do any other book with this person, but like not Hawkeye. Hawkeye is such a specific thing. And I was like, I just, you know, like, I can't, this is not my vision of Hawkeye, but like, if they're looking for work, like, let me do a different book with them. Mm -hmm. And then at some point someone was like, what about Otto? And I think both of us immediately were like, well, is he available? And they were like, oh, I, I don't know. And we're like, can we find out now? It just like clicked for both me and Alana like instantly. And, and we waited like two weeks of just like kind of holding our breath to, to see if Marvel could figure it out and close the deal. And when he came on uh, the first day, he was like, I'm doing some sketches for, for Hawkeye, like check them out. And I was just like, oh, they're so much better than I thought they were going to be. And I had the highest hopes. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. He's, he's so talented and you know, when you start a new relationship with an artist on a book, like there's sort of a learning curve as you figure out like, what are they good at? What do they excel at? How can I, you know, show that off? And usually, you know, like you're like, Oh, their character work is great. Or like, you know, they're, they're good at these, you know, designing things and things just look cool. Or like their acting is awesome or they can do action. Well, and Otto is good at all of it. (laughs) I just had this moment where I was just like, man, I, I need to put more fight scenes and more, like, <laughs> yeah. Clint flirting with his girlfriend scenes and more, like, 
you know, just hanging out and, and jokey reaction shots. And, and so like every issue is sort of a learning curve as I try and write for him. And, and he just is getting better with every issue as I like, I'm just like, go nuts, man. Like this is your chance to really shine. So like issue two is awesome. And issue three is like even better. So, uh, it's been a thrill. I'm there's a, there's so a happy really with it. A cool uniqueness to the art in Hawkeye. Like it is, it's a, like a slight departure. I feel like from his stuff on green arrow, which was the most recent thing I was reading of his. And it's, like it's a it's an even new flavor for him but what i think is really cool is that you put like your own spin on clint and i think that that's probably hard to do um when you're working in an industry with with characters like hawkeye where like the fraction book comes out and kind of everyone is like oh we're we're changing the tone to be in line with this book's voice of it uh, i i was pretty impressed with your ability to to put a like a, a you know a Matthew Rosenberg spin on on the Clint character. It uh, it really is like between the art and the writing uh, a new flavor, and I'm I'm really into it. And I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but just like your banter between uh, like him and and Bucky and Sam was just really really well done, man. Oh, thanks. Yeah, the you know I, was, I it, the Hawkeye book is is a funny thing because like I mean I grew up on. Avengers Spotlight and Solo Avengers and these these Hawkeye these stealth Hawkeye books and I'm I'm just a huge Hawkeye fan but obviously like when Matt Fraction and David Aha took the book like they changed everything like that book is redefining of a character and redefining of what a Marvel book could be and it, you know like you can't sort of undersell what that book is and so uh, you you come across a really unique problem when you take over Hawkeye because you know, I could do the bad cover band version of them. And like me and Otto could do an impression of Matt and David and it would be a bummer for Matt and David. It would be a bummer for fans and it would be a bummer for us. And so you end up being like, well, I don't, you end up having to reinvent the wheel when the wheel works fine. Like you're, you're throwing out things that are good that you love because you're like, I can't have this. And so there's a lot of like trying to distill something and make it unique and make it different. And, and I've seen that, you know, every book, every Hawkeye book that's come since Matt and David has done that. I think, you know, Jeff Lemire's run, like Jeff is doing a very different kind of Hawkeye book that's unique and weird and cool. And then Kelly Thompson comes in and Kelly's doing her own Hawkeye. That's, that's cool in a different way. And, um, you know, and I don't want to be doing what they do. So yeah, it, it is a weird tightrope act. I, in some ways, like my idea was to do a Hawkeye book that I think is, you know, pays tribute to what Matt and David did. And, and, you know, I, I do love it. I'm a huge fan, but also pulling them a little bit back towards the, the central Marvel universe in a way, like a little more guest appearances, a little more super heroics, a little more of that kind of stuff, but it still feels not like any other Marvel book was our goal to be like, it's closer to the orbit of other Marvel books, but, but because of that, we'll feel very weird and very out there. And I think Otto's art's perfect for it because he doesn't look like anyone else drawing at Marvel. But I think even if you grew up on, you know, John Byrne, art, like whoever art is your favorite, I think you'll see Otto's stuff and just recognize that he's that kind of good that like uh, anyone, anyone will appreciate it. So I'm hoping that it's a book that really, you know, feels unique and different, but also also makes sense to what came before it. So you got to uh, you you have a hand in choosing Otto for this book. Did you have a lot of uh, a lot of input on who would be drawing the Punisher series uh, that you just wrapped up? Uh, that was that was mm-hmm. 
that one just surprised me with every issue. I was like, I can't believe this is still this badass. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, no, actually, what's funny about... Um, I'm going to end up saying something kind of negative uh, without meaning to, but uh, I won't name names, but the book was actually solicited with a different artist when we started. Our The War Machine stuff that I did before... Um, was fine. And then, uh, when we relaunched with Punisher number one with Frank out of the armor, we had a different artist attached and it, it sort of fell apart at the 11th hour. And, uh, Simon Kodransky, we were behind on deadline and Simon was looking for work and they were like, this guy loves the Punisher. He's going to be your guy. And I was like, okay. And I, you know, I knew his stuff and I was like, awesome. Cool. And I was like, are we re-soliciting? Are we pushing back a month? And they were like, no, he can hit the deadline. And I was like, it's a 30-page issue, and he has two weeks. And they were like, he can do it. And I was like, no one can do that. And then he came in a day early. And I was like, what the hell just happened? And then he was like, next script. And I just had this realization that I was like, it looks awesome. He is like adding so much brutality and depth and sort of craziness to what I'm writing and he's doing it so quick and efficiently. I was like, they're going to let us go as long as, as we want and sort of just run with this. And like, um, so I was really lucky to get Simon. I didn't, I didn't pick him. He sort of fell in my lap. And then, you know, I, I think I don't probably have to tell you guys, this is retailers like Simon, me and Antonio did 17 issues together. No fill-ins, no, no other guest appearances. We did that in, in 13 months which like no one in comics is doing. Um, so like impressive. Yeah. You know, like there, there are very few guys who can do month, a monthly book in and out. And, and he was doing two a month in and out without missing a beat. Like, I just remember like seeing Bendis and Bendis was like, Oh yeah, he's doing a couple issues of uh, action comics. And I was like, what, when he's like, Oh, he's already done two. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I feel real lucky. He, he just killed it on every level. And it's, it's funny because I, I was writing scripts with a different artist in mind when we started, I was three issues in when we started and, and when Simon started and like, uh, a lot of the stuff we ended up putting in the book, if it was a little more cartoony, I think people would be like fine with it. And then Simon does stuff and it's very photorealistic. And I was like, Oh, this is really brutal. Like this is really a messed up book to look at. Uh, cause I wasn't writing with him in mind and was sort of, and, and, you know, Marvel sort of let it go. And I think people were kind of shocked at how, how brutal and visceral the book is. But, um, you know, we, uh, that was just a sort of coincidence of, of timing, a lucky, a happy, a happy accident as it were. Um, you sent us uh, a really awesome list of sort of the, the different art that was sort of uh, orbiting the Rosen sphere while you were working on Hawkeye Freefall. And, uh, yes. And, and dude, I, man, I, I listened to those albums, that ceremony album uh, I fell in love with. I made Django listen to it with me like three times a day while the store was going on. Um, but uh, I'm just a huge fan of sort of hearing how creators take art in as they're creating and it sort of becomes filtered through the lens of who they are, is there anything in particular you would like to highlight that uh, that as Hawkeye Freefall comes out, like that ceremony album, I can kind of feel as I was reading Hawkeye, I could feel that album. There's sort of like a colorful, chaotic punk feel to it that I loved. Is there uh, anything else that sort of was was going on that you feel like kind of has a through line through this book that you did? You know, uh, a big thing for me always um, is 
is music uh, when I write because it's. Uh, I mean, I think I think a lot of other types of influences that when you talk about like film or, or television or books or or anything or even you know paint, art, and sculpture or whatever. I think those are absorbed in a sort of more uh, participatory way. They're sort of, you know, like you, you kind of take them in, uh, you eat them instead of absorbing them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas music is something that, like, uh, I put on while I work, and it, it just sort of moves through uh, the work. And I know, I know a lot of a lot of uh, I know a lot of writers sort of talk about like, oh, I listen to. Um, movie soundtracks and I can't do that. Like I'm not, my brain doesn't work that way because if I'm listening to Indiana Jones, like I'm going to write a script where, you know, he's running from a boulder and falling into a pit of snakes or whatever. And it just like, I I feel the movie influence. I feel the influence of that stuff. So I, I look for, for records that, that aren't, that don't have a visual component. They don't have a narrative component per se. And like, um, I remember talking about it once and, and I was on a panel and, and someone asked about the, the stuff that influences us. And I, I said, uh, you know, I, I more than any like book or comic or anything that like, you know, obviously on a book like this, like fraction and aha talk, I run and Dennis's new Avengers. And, you know, like those are huge influences on the way I write the character and my influence. And then there's other stuff that like, you know, tonally or structurally matter. But, uh, you know, I, I said on this panel, I was like, for me, a big thing is like finding that song that, that creates a mood that, that gives you a feeling and then sort of focusing on that feeling and trying to recreate that through my writing, trying to interpret it. And it's a super, I, I felt very like kind of pretentious in saying that. And I was like, I have no idea if I'm, you know, sort of talking on my ass. And Jeff Lemire was on the panel and, and Jeff, like, I don't know Jeff super well. He's, he's a very nice dude, but you know, he, he turned to me and he's like, I, he's like, I a hundred percent know what you mean. Like the, the idea of like chasing an emotion that, that doesn't have words to it or an image to it. It's easy to like see a movie and be like, that movie's sad. I'm going to watch that movie and then write something sad. But that's a, that's a sort of one-to-one translation and I, I really love the idea of music and the way music sort of affects mood and trying to interpret that and trying to pin that down and extrapolate it and translate it onto a page like that's something that really matters to me so like yeah on the Hawkeye record it's like you know I'm writing Annihilation right now and that's big chaotic space craziness and I'm listening to lots of like epic sort of metal you know, hardcore metal and, you know, wolves in the throne room and stuff like that. That's just like this orchestral metal, but like for something like Hawkeye, yeah, it's, it's a little dirtier. It's a little punker. It's, um, but yeah, it's, it's hectic and it's, it's, it's colorful and it's, it's quirky and it's weird and it's, but like it's catchy and, and it, you know, it sticks with you. And, and that to me was like a lot of the stuff I'm chasing is on, on like that ceremony record and, and nothing and bands like that. There's a band called dangers from Seattle that I listen to a bunch that are like a little heavier, but like, it's just so energetic in such a like fun, destructive way that, that I, I really was like tapping into that as much as I could. 
Well, people around here were an hour away from Seattle, so hopefully they'll go check out Dangers. Uh, and I totally understand what you're talking about. Like a, a month or so ago, Django posed the question to me of like, hey, I, I noticed in the last couple of years you really don't listen to music that has lyrical, like a lyrical component as much as you used to. And he just asked me why. And it kind of boils down to that same thing is I really love the sort of emotional space that music can put you in and working through mm -hmm. that and even having a lyrical component kind of drives a narrative sometimes. I love creating my own narrative with it. Um, so I love hearing you talk about that. I'm lazy. I just like yeah. words. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, I like words too. And, uh, you know, words are great. Um, <laughs> you know, and I also, you know, like I wrote, uh, I listen to Taylor Swift a lot. I listen to all sorts of stuff. You know, I'm too, looking Matt, for Springsteen. Yeah. <laughs> 1989 is a great album. It is a great album. I uh, I have a 1989 sweatshirt that I wear a lot. Oh fuck yeah, um, man! You've outdone me. But I do. I I drive around with that CD in my car uh, to this day often. Um, yeah, well, listen, it's a great I'm record. so so grateful that you're still sticking around with us. I would love to just get a question in from one of our one or two of our uh, customers that when we. We waited to tell people till today that we were doing this because comic book interview things fall through a lot. And shocking though it may be, this is our first uh, podcast interview like this. Um, oh, but, I'm flattered. Uh, yeah, man, our store, like, we've got a, a lot of people that are really big fans of your work. And, and we haven't even touched on the Annihilation stuff that you're doing. But we've got people who are just like, oh, man, you know, spoilers, I'm a huge Century fan. This is awesome. It's awesome to, to talk about the writers that you were friends with growing, you know, coming into the scene with are now doing like the silver surfer book or the beta ray bill book. Um, so yeah, yeah. really appreciate, uh, all of that. But Dino Chapman, actually somebody who approached you at a convention, probably in Seattle here, not too long ago, um, mm -hmm. wanted us to ask you, uh, in your uncanny X-Men run mystique impersonated captain America to fill the role of somebody that Cyclops would trust. Was there any other mm -hmm. character that you thought of that might be able to fill that same role to Cyclops? I, I mean, again, that's spoilers for that run, and, and it's a fantastic run. Um, Thank you. That's a really, it was a um, really cool idea because Captain America fills a very unique role to Cyclops, especially after Avengers vs. X-Men. What did your brain do with that? Yeah, you know, uh, early on, I, I knew we wanted a Mystique component um, and I knew I wanted a Captain America versus Cyclops component. And I, you know, if you're doing the last days of mutants, which is sort of the story we were doing the last days of the X-Men, um, you know, Cap's got some stuff to answer for, for letting them all die. And, and Scott would have some stuff to say. So I, I knew I needed them to get together and have a scene. Um, there was an initial idea that Mystique was going to, uh, this is a big spoiler, and it, it got cut early, but but we had the idea that Mystique and Emma together would do a very elaborate uh, impression of Professor X, and we were going to have them... He was Mystique was going to be Professor X and getting fed information that only Professor X would know by Emma, and we wouldn't, you wouldn't reveal that for a long time, so it seemed like Xavier was running the show and Cyclops was just sort of follow, falling back in line. And then doing kind of horrific things at, at Emma and, and Mystique's command and, until someone sniffed it out. And, and it, we were always going to have the beat where Juggernaut knows who Emma Frost is and no one else does. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was going to be the reveal is just that, like, Juggernaut is just like, this isn't my brother and why aren't you talking about Emma Frost and what the hell's going on? Um, but we cut the Xavier thing um, 
actually for a different Xavier thing that we also didn't end up doing. And then, uh, and then it just sort of hit me that I was like, Oh, it should be Captain America. It should be like, you know, the, the, the way Cyclops twists and turns to try and make things work. Um, he's going to get into bed with people that he's had a rivalry with before to try and make it work. And this one is like horrifically mis misplayed. So yes, there was a different plan and it was going to be Xavier, but uh, I'm really happy with the, the cap beat. It was, it was especially fun because cap fans were super angry and like <laughs> in the first issue, they were like kind of okay. And then when he kept coming back, they were like, cap is making him do this. Like that sucks. And they were just like, that cap wouldn't do that. And I have to just sit there and be like, yeah, yeah. Cap probably wouldn't do that. That's a good point, man. <laughs> and then, you know, the reveal that cap wouldn't do that. And, and it's, uh, you know, that's, that's fun to sort of rip the rug out from other people. For sure. Matt, you have mentioned that just coming off of that, that you uh, still love to go to comic shops on Wednesdays. Now that you're sure. somebody responsible for these stories, uh, how has it changed your Wednesday routine? Do you still go to the same shop? Do you change the hours that you try to go? Were you Different some baseball caps? Yeah. Do you, was, did you uh. engage, actively engage in conversation? Do you just try to get in and get your books and then leave before anyone tries to have an argument with you? You know, uh, um, uh, I'm in New York, and there's a ton of great shops in New York, so I, I do try and move around and hit a bunch of the shops. Um, but... Uh, you know, New Yorkers are, are pretty jaded. So like, there's a lot of, uh, you know, when I were, I worked in a comic shop in New York and, and Nicholas Cage would come in and, and, and famous people come in and people didn't bat an eye and they'd just be like, yeah, it's a famous person. We're in New York. So the amount, like people recognize me and know who I am, but mostly they just go, Hey, good job. And it doesn't affect anything. So no, I, I haven't done anything. I mean, mostly I'm just like, you know, I like talking to the staff and, you know, like hanging out and, um, you know, a lot of times I'll go in on a on a Tuesday night and you know find some books. And if I do that, I try and bring some donuts and and forever and working. And that's about it. That's really the only difference. Other than that, it's it's pretty much the same. Cool. Well, listen. Uh, one thing before I ask my final selfish question. Um, <laughs> in listening to an interview with you, you did it live at a convention with somebody and. You, you talked for a minute about when you wrote Phoenix Resurrection and everything that happened with Gene, and then you were given the, the, the ability to write more, and you were like, no, I, I think I've said my piece. I don't want to lead the next person. Uh, and then Tom came in with uh, X-Men Red, and you just sort of talked yeah. with pride about how wonderful that story had become. And just as somebody who's pretty involved in reading comics and sharing them with people, I thought it was really really cool the way that you talked about being part of the sort of marvel machine there of being able to take a baton and hand it off and and be a part of something without needing to like drive it entirely um as a retailer that's just it's really cool to hear people <clears throat> behind the book saying something like that so that's oh. from me to you that's a i think that just even with this interview i think that we could talk a lot about a specific book that's coming out but i think that people once they start to know somebody and they have a, a connection with that creator, that, that that's what really bonds them with the creator's art. So um, I really appreciate you giving us a chance to get to know you and our listeners a chance to get to know you. Um, yeah, my thank final, you so much. Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah, really. And we'd love to get you in the store at some point if you're up here in Seattle or, or anything. But um, my final selfish question, is, is Jonathan Hickman scary to be around? <laughs> um Jonathan is a guy who uh, he's one of my favorite writers in comics bar none Likewise. um 
And, you know, he's a guy who, you know, I knew he was taking over X-Men before I started. So, like, he was always this impending, like, oh, Jonathan's going to do something. Um, he's very, when he pitches a book and when he tells you a story, like, I sat in a room and he walked me through his X-Men. And, you know, it's uh, I, I finished and I was like, that's the best pitch for anything I've ever heard. <laughs> and then I remember, like, uh, Nick Spencer and Jason Aaron being like, yeah, that's the best pitch I've ever heard, too. And I was like, good, I'm not alone. <laughs> like, that was just flawless. Um but he uh, he's very intense in a room because he is clearly one of the smartest people in there. And, like, you know, it's sort of almost a game other Marvel writers have to sort of catch him up and be like, well, this doesn't make sense. And, he, and he'll have an answer because everything makes sense, because there is a plan for everything. He's thought There's nothing you think of that he hasn't thought of. Mm-hmm. And so he, he, like, you know, he'll leave something out and he'll be like, uh, dude, this doesn't track. And he'll be like, that's because in year two, we're going to do this and this will happen. And you're like, Oh, that's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a level of intimidation, but actually he's like incredibly nice. He's one of the funniest people I've ever spoken to. Um, no, he's great. He's great. He's, a uh, he's hard to read, but he's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm that totally tracks to me. I met him briefly once and I was like, wow, this guy is, He's a lot. He's a lot. Um, but one of my favorites, as, as well as yourself. So, Matt, thank you really so, so, so much uh, for, for being on our podcast. We're going to have a ton of copies of Hawkeye Freefall here in the store. It's fantastic. The writing is amazing. The, the art is incredible. Um, just a huge amount of thank you uh, for hanging out with us, man. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. This was super fun. Um, cool. Well, uh, we'll let you go because you've probably got a lot, a lot of a lot of publicity still uh, before January when this book comes out. So, um, thanks again, and I, I look forward to seeing you in person again and not being the silent uh, manservant next to Django. We can swap. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Sounds good, guys. Uh, I look forward to it, and and uh, have a good rest of your night. Cool, man. Right, thanks too. so much. Good luck over there. See ya. Thanks, guys. <laughs> 